0: The church in Galatia was born out of a beautiful movement of the Holy Spirit. The powerful and potent preaching of the good news of Jesus birthed a movement among the Galatians. But shortly after the Apostle Paul left, the church was hit with a crisis. The church had been infiltrated by a poisonous and convincing idea. Faith in Jesus was not enough. Instead of resting upon the completed work of Jesus, the Galatians began to believe they needed to affiliate with the right tribe of Christians, which meant they had to add to the equation. It was Jesus plus fulfilling the law, Jesus plus religious affiliation, Jesus plus sacred traditions. And if we're not careful, we, too, can heretically add to the gospel in the name of our own theological tribalism. But adding to the gospel only subtracts from it being the good news. There is only one equation we need. Jesus plus nothing
1: equals everything. Well, good morning. How are we doing, Rise City Church? Good to see everybody, all your smiling faces. Nobody can say I don't do anything at this church. (laughs) Hey, so we are diving into the epistle to the Galatians. And as a recap from last week, Paul is, he has planted this church by the gospel. He's seen fruit by the gospel. But then this group came in and they started to deviate from the gospel and convince people they needed to add to the gospel. It's Jesus plus other things. And what, we, what we're reminded of and what we have to think about is, is there is a path that we have to walk the path of Jesus. And we cannot stray to the left or the right. On the left is, is progressive theology that says theology changes with culture and it needs to adapt to the culture around us. No, that is a falling away from the gospel. But on the right it is a theology that is driven by pharisaicalism. And legalism. And that is a deviation from the gospel. No, we have to be about the gospel of grace of Jesus. And uh, if you thought last week was fiery, buckle up for week two, okay? Galatians chapter one, starting in verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers that the gospel that was preached to me by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to start working through this section here, a, a pretty large section. And what he's doing, what Paul is doing, is he's lending credibility to the gospel that he preached and the story that he lived to give evidence to the importance of why it has to be guarded. And and the first thing he says here that we see is the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Now, the word gospel in the Greek, uh, in the original language in the Greek, is the word euangelion. Okay, everybody say euangelion. Euangelion. Oh, that was so good. Well done. Be proud of yourself, but not too prideful, okay? Okay, uh, euangelion. Okay, but the word preached is really fascinating to me because the word euangelizomai So euangelion, euangelismi. And so it's the word euangelion, it means good news. And euangelismi means to declare the good news. So literally what Paul is saying here, he's saying the gospel that was gospeled by me is not man's gospel. Are you seeing like a theme to Paul's teaching? It's kind of built around one thing and one thing only. It's the gospel of Jesus. And he's actually trying to make a distinction of why it is so important that we not add to the gospel or subtract to the gospel. You know what that is? It's because it's not man's gospel we're adding to or subtracting from. It's God's. And he's given it to us. And so we don't get to just walk around and say things like, well, that's your gospel, but I have my gospel. Your gospel may be a gospel of freedom, but mine is marked by tradition. Your gospel is marked by, might be marked by grace, but mine is marked by my own goodness. And he even explains it, says it one more time I did not receive it from any man. And the reason he's saying I did not receive it from any man is because he's, he's making a declaration and, and bringing attention to this idea that we, ha- we come up with these man-made words and we think we're so wise and theological. And the reason we do them is it's a way of wrapping our minds around or summarizing these ideas. But here's where it becomes, and it can be helpful, but here's where it becomes dangerous when we start to um, say the phrase, I am a blank. And, and, and let me just give you, let me, get, let me poke the bear a little bit. Let me, let me give some examples, okay? When we say, I'm a Calvinist. Or I am a an Armenian. I'm a complementarian. Or I'm an egalitarian. I'm a continuationist. Or I'm a cessationist. I'm pre-trib. I am post-trib. I am an amillennialist. I am a dispensationalist. These I want you. What I want you to see. These are all man-made words. They're not biblical words. And what's crazy to me and what I see in the church and, and what, uh, as a whole and I see in these theological tribes is most theological church battles are around man-made words, not biblical ones. We, 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 we create these ideas so that we can make sense of things and then we argue over our ideas that we've created versus God's good word. And it brings about division. And here's why. is because even the phrase I am That's an identity phrase, is it not? And so you're no longer saying, hey, this is my understanding or here's what I believe or here's what I taught. You're saying, no, no, my identity is this. And I just wanna push back on this. I do not want you to identify as a Baptist. I don't want you to identify as a Presbyterian. I don't want you to identify as an egalitarian. I don't want you to identify as a Calvinist. I want you to identify as a disciple of Jesus. That is who you are, that is our identity. And we have to root it in that. And so this is why, like, you will rarely ever hear me teach theological tribes from the pulpit. Because I believe it is much more fruitful to teach the word than man's theological camps associated with interpretations of the word. And and so, listen, I will teach about the wonderful sovereignty of God. I will teach the biblical concept of sin and depravity. I will teach about how God chooses us how God calls us, how he predestined us to be adopted as sons. Why will I teach these things? Because it's biblical. These, these are the words of scripture, but I'm not going to teach Calvinism because that's a man-made construct around a biblical idea. And so listen, we can discuss and we can debate the non-essentials, but we do not divide over the non-essentials. Now, I want to say a careful caveat. Um, The essentials, we divide over. And here's what I mean. Um, If you teach that Jesus is not fully God, you're a different religion. It's not just like, oh, that's one segment of Christianity. No, that's that's a cult. And that is a different religion. If you teach that God is not, he's not a person, he's not the triune God three in one, but he's actually a force among all things, then that's actually paganism and we will divide over that. Sorry, we are, not, we are not the same. And if you teach that God's word cannot be trusted, then you and me, we, we are not on the same page. So the, the essentials, you, you do divide over. You say, I'm, I'm sorry, we, we, are not, we, we do not find commonality, but the non-essentials, we do not divide over. Not in our church, and not with the churches around us. It's okay to see these differences. And so let me just, let me just go through a list, all right? L- listen, we are not gonna divide over politics. We're not gonna fight over whether Jesus wants you to be a Democrat or a Republican, okay? <laughs> listen, there are biblical ideas around loving the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the minority. That is a biblical concept. There are bib- there, the Bible is clear, about loving the unborn. Do not claim your identity. I am a Republican. I am a Democrat. Claim your identity. I am a Christian. I am a disciple of Jesus. That's what we find commonality That's what we unite over. We're not gonna divide over Bible translation. It's just not gonna be a hot topic or an issue. When I preach, I prefer to preach out of the ESV because I love how precise the language is. But in my personal study, when I'm reading at home, I read the nearly inspired version, the NIV, okay? (laughs) Why? Why? Because I grew up on it, and and it's common language to me, and I have this Bible that I've had for 20 years that I just, I love. And so in in my personal time and devotions, I read that. But when I preach, I I want the technical language so I can work through it. You could be pre-trib or post-trib rapture or all millennialists, but we're not gonna argue over whether or not Kirk Cameron gets left behind or not. Like, that's not gonna gonna be a battle that we have. And, And here's what I need you to know. Okay, when it comes to the second coming of Jesus, we are on the welcoming committee, not the planning committee, right? So Jesus come back, but not like, well, here's my charts and graphs, and here's my, no, 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 okay, like we, th- we don't do that. We should be aware, absolutely. We should look for the signs, absolutely, but you're not in charge of planning it. You're in charge of saying, come, Lord Jesus, come, and we worship you as, as you come. We're not gonna argue over 90s Christian sensation, whether or not 90s Christian sensation D- DC talk is legitimate rap or not. <laughs> I don't care if you're down with a DC talk, that's fine. You're, you, you, that, that's more than welcome, okay? So apparently not a lot of 90s Christian music fans in here. People are like, I don't know who that is. That's, consider that a blessing, okay? Uh, listen, we're not gonna divide over Calvinism and Arminianism. We're not gonna divide over it. If you are an Arminian, and you identify that way, right? Um, please use your free will and your freedom to choose unity with your church. If you are a Calvinist, you didn't choose it. God predestined you to be a Calvinist, so I'm not gonna hold it against you, okay? So <laughs> the, the, I think the one exception might be ducks versus beavers, right, you know, that, that, that's hard. But I think even the blood of Christ, can, we can find commonality in, in that. See, and if you, if you, I'm going through all these ideas, and you're sitting there, and you're like, I literally have no idea what that guy is talking about. (laughs) Praise the good Lord. (laughs) You don't need to learn about these debates. You need to learn about the person and work of Jesus. His goodness, not his gospel, not man's gospel. The point in all of this is these are not things that we're gonna divide over and we're not gonna split over. And Paul is sharing this to lay a foundation. No, no, this is God's gospel. And then he, he's gonna go into his story in, in, in one thirteen all the way through 2.10, and he shares it to give evidence and credibility to the gospel that he preached, that it came from Jesus, and it's affirmed by the other apostles. So Galatians 1.13 through 14, he, he kind of explains how he persecuted the church. and And he was... He was doing that with his life. But then in verses 15 through 17, it explains that he was commissioned by the risen Jesus, that Jesus set it apart and, and gave him a mission and, and sent him off. And then, in Galatians 1.18 through 2.10, he kind of tells these stories about meeting with the different apostles. Because he was supported and he was affirmed by the apostles. And he goes through this long story and he gives all these details. Because he wants to establish his credibility and authority of the gospel that he preached. That it was, it's established through his radical conversion. It's through his commissioning by Christ and through confirmation of the apostles. He's like, look, I didn't just make this up. I was radically changed. I was commissioned by Jesus, and then I was confirmed by the apostles. What he says in 13 and 14, look at it with me. For you have heard of my former life and Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age Many of my own age, among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. See, the gospel, why Paul is sharing this, is the gospel comes after both the religious and the rebellious. He's going through his past, and he's like, look, I was so zealous, and I was religious, and I did all the right things, but also I was rebellious. See, no one is so good that they don't need the grace of the gospel. You can't earn your way to God's goodness. No, we need grace. And no one is so bad that they can't receive the grace of the gospel. This is why the gospel is good news. And this is why we build upon it. And this is why we actually look back on our life. And we have to say, man, God is moving. God has moved in your life. And I know some of you, you feel this like, oh man, I fall short. I hate the things that I've done in my past. And I'm not saying no, no regrets, okay? That's not, what the, that's not what it's saying. What I'm saying is God can take these things and he can use them. Look at verse 15. It says, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. What he's saying is God is gonna use all the brokenness for your, of your past for his glory, He's going to redeem it. He's going to renew it. Paul's recognizing, man, from the day I was born, everything that happened to me, God's going to actually use this to shape me and to prepare me for the life that he has for me. Everything in your history, everything you're facing right now, sometimes it feels overwhelming. Someone just feels brutal. Like, how, how do I do this? How do I work through this? How do, how do I get over the shame of my past? Let me tell you how. You take it and you bring it to Jesus. And the Jesus who resurrects, he can resurrect your story and he can use it in powerful ways for God's glory. Paul starts listening out, he lists out all these different things. His knowledge and his zeal, the training, the effort, He was using to oppose God and his church. And he's saying all these things were being used by God to break him and to equip him. So that he could be God's instrument for building his church. And God has been working all along to use Paul to establish the very faith that he opposed. And he wants to use you in the same way. See, people started saying this thing about Paul. And he even quotes it, right? Right? He like retweets them. He's like, check this out. This is what people are saying. Verse 23, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy and they glorified God because of me. And so God, so Paul here, he's saying, man, everything about my past, God is going to use all the brokenness and the pain and he's gonna use it for his glory. And he's going to bring about redemption in a powerful way. And if we would bring it to him, I don't know about you, but I, but I need to be reminded of that on a regular basis. That is a powerful, powerful thing for me to understand. Um, I'll show you a picture of this guy named W.T. Kirkpatrick. Anybody know? Uh, you want to go and pull that up? This uh, Known as the Great Knock. Anybody know who W.T. Kirkpatrick is? Yeah, that's what I thought, okay? Nobody knows who W. D. Ker- T. Kirkpatrick is. Let me tell you about him. Um, he was a teacher, and um, he was actually a furious debater and logician, and he would teach his students how to build a case detail by detail and make a strong argument. And, in fact, he was a staunch atheist, and he would train up these atheist debaters. Here's how you destroy the Christian faith. Here's how you rip them apart and, and piece by piece. And then in 1914, he got this young teenage boy named Clive Staples Lewis. His boys called him C.S. And he tutored him. And at the time, C.S. Lewis was an atheist. And so uh, the Great Knock, as C.S. Lewis would call him, uh, he taught Lewis how to lay out flawless Logical arguments. He taught him how to debate brilliantly against his opponents. And he did all of this with the purpose of deepening Lewis's own atheism. But years later, when Lewis became a Christian, it turned out that the great knock, the brilliant atheist debaters, had trained one of the greatest defenders of the Christian faith that our world would ever know. What the enemy intended for evil God intended for good. Some of you guys have maybe seen uh, the documentary on Netflix, Wild, Wild Country, about the Rajneesh. Uh, so it's this, this cult in India. Uh, and, uh, and, and so they decide, that they look around the whole world, and they're like, man, we just want to find a wonderful land to just, you know, take possession of. And So they look at the whole world, and they're like, Oregon, right? <laughs> so they come out to Oregon. And, uh, and they actually end up purchasing 64,000 acres in the middle of Antelope, Oregon, in central Oregon. And uh, they, they invest $120 million building one of the most beautiful campuses you will ever see. Actually, you can go pull that up. I mean, it was like a small city. It's massive. I mean, absolutely incredible in the middle of the desert, 120 minutes. Irrigation, they, they brought, all the things that they brought in was absolutely incredible. And they, they decided as a cult, like, hey, we're going to actually get political power. And here's how we're going to get political power. If we just poison the whole town with salmonella on the day of the election— um, by putting it in the water stream, then everybody will be sick, and then we will be the only ones that vote, and then we'll be in power. Brilliant strategy, right? Except for one of them had a conscience and reported this to authorities, and the whole cult got shut down. Property got removed away. They ended up putting it up for auction. Another guy named Dennis Washington, and he bought the property on a tax lien, these these, uh, 64,000 acres on a tax lien. He wanted to turn it into like a retreat resort. Uh, And uh, but because of, you know, all kinds of things happened to where that didn't work out. And so he donated it for one dollar to Young Life Christian Camps. And uh, they've expanded on it. And so uh, another donation came in for three hundred million dollars and they bought this. They built this water slide, which so that was not around when the Rajneesh were there. But I could totally see the Bhagwan just rocking those slides. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like and uh, and so every summer. Thousands and thousands of teenagers gather together in the middle of Antelope, Oregon. And they hear the gospel and they worship Jesus all to God's glory on Satan's dime. That's what he does. That is how God is redeeming stories. This is what Tim Keller says and how he puts it. He says, the gospel gives us a pair of spectacles through which we can review our own lives And see God preparing us and shaping us even through our failures and sins. Don't miss this. To become vessels of his grace in the world. Listen to me. That that brokenness of your past. man, those things that you hate about yourself. Would you bring them to Jesus? And Jesus is going to redeem them. And he's going to heal them. And he's going to renew them for his glory. And you're going to be able to speak to hurting people in a language that others cannot because of what you've gone through and because of how Jesus has redeemed it. This is the power of the gospel. And so this is why Paul is sharing the backstory, because he comes in hot and he's like, I I can't believe what's happening in this church. Let me just reestablish the gospel. Let me walk through my story, God's incredible story of grace, because I want you to see why we do not put up with this. And, and this is Paul's argument. We do not and we cannot let spiritual bullies hijack God's story. You cannot let other people come in and be like, okay, yeah, 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 but, you know, that's cute, you know, the whole redemption gospel thing, that's, that's wonderful. But really, you're not an authentic church. You're not an authentic Christian unless you have this, 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 this and add to and add to and add to the gospel. No, Jesus gets all the credit and God gets all the glory. Here's what he says in Galatians chapter two, verse four. He says, this matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ and to make us slaves in what he's referring to, slaves to the law. We did not give it into them for a moment, So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved in you. Now he says this matter. Whenever you see that, you gotta ask yourself that question, okay? So and he refers to it in the previous verses in chapter two. He's the matter, and we talked about it last week, was that there was a group called the circumcision group, and they were coming around, and they were adding that as a requirement to being saved, okay? Yep, you can follow Jesus, you just have to have a minor surgery, okay? And so and so by, by doing that, they're adding to the gospel. Now, here's what's fascinating to me, if you read through the book of Acts, which is the story of Paul, is there are many times, actually, where Paul is taking a companion with him, and he's like, hey, we're going to, to reach these people in order to do that. Um, sorry, bro, you got to get circumcised, okay, and we're going on this party, okay? And then uh, other people, like right here, actually in this story, it's Titus. It says, no, he wasn't forced, and he didn't need to be because of where he's going, which I'm sure at some point, like, the people were just like, some of the dudes were just looking at Titus, like, seriously, bro? Like, Like this is not fair, you know, but, but the reason that this is important to understand is there, it, Paul isn't saying this thing is right or wrong. I know we don't, this is weird for us to understand because we don't live 2000 years ago and it's not a part of our culture, but it's a cultural moment where Paul is saying, Hey, it's not wrong to do this. And it's not wrong to, to not do this. In fact, it's actually okay for us to have our differences. And this is important for us to understand as a church. In, in, in verse seven, he's actually, what he talks about is this idea that, hey, I'm called to preach to the, to the Gentiles and Peter, he's called to preach to the Jews and we all affirm that. And our differences are actually good. This is why we have different churches, even in our city. It is not a, a picture of, of us being divided or, or disunity. It's a picture of the beautiful mosaic of the church. That God reaches, raises up all kinds of people to reach all kinds of people. And different churches are called to reach different people. This is why we love the churches around us. And we're going to speak well of the churches around us. And we're going to have fellowship with the churches around And we're going to honor. Are they different? Yeah. They're different. And guess what? That is a good thing because they are called to reach and evangelize and disciple different people. We need all kinds of churches in our community, and we have to unify around the gospel, not divide over our differences. That's the call of the church. And so listen to me. It's okay for you to say this is not the church I want to be a part of. I know this isn't like a really good church growth strategy, okay? (laughs) But look, I know these churches. I know their leaders. I know many of their... There are so many incredibly healthy, good, gospel-centered churches in our community. And if you find yourself like, hey, this is the church I'm going to be a part of, man, may God's blessing be on you. May you serve your heart out, and may you reach people. May, may, May that church grow and expand and be under the blessing of God. This is the posture. It's okay. But... The issue here, so clearly it's not who is right and who is wrong. The issue here is how they are approaching it and how they are going about it. And what he's saying is how they're going about it is divisive. And how they're going about it is bringing it equal with the gospel. Which leads me to just say this. You might be right, but the, by the way you're going about it, you are wrong how we approach these things and speak about speak about others matter in the church of galatia what they had happening was religious bullying and what i mean by that is they were making some people feel like a less than christian if they didn't go along with them and 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 precisely how they were doing that they're trying to hijack god's story of grace say no you're less than you're not as good as me And so I want to say this, listen, God uses our differences to strengthen us, but the enemy uses our differences to divide us. And that is a huge way to recognize how we're approaching things. Look at the words Paul uses here. I mean, he's intense. He says, false believers. He says, infiltrated our ranks, spy on. There there seems to be this like backhandedness, secretness, like private, you know, me, like and this is, he's pointing to this idea that division, it's done in secrecy. It's actually deeds done in darkness. You pull others aside, you have the secret meeting, you share this letter, you forward this email, or here, here's a good, hey, I have a prayer request. Could you just pray for me? Because Janet, you know, right? You know what I'm talking about? That moment where like, no, no, it's just like a blanket cover for gossiping, right? Sorry, Janet, you know, if you're in the room, but like, you know, it, it, we use these things. Or I just have some concerns that I just feel like it's helpful for me to share with you. I don't share with other people, but I'll share with you, right? Like it, there, it's divisive. There's a grossness to it. It's what the Bible calls deeds done in darkness because there's a purpose behind it. And when the purpose is stirring up division or getting people on your side or dismantling the reputation of others, it is not glorifying to God. And Paul is calling it out. This is why Paul, when he's giving counsel to another pastor, a young pastor, he, he speaks about this. He says, as for, a young, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then warning him twice have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Divisiveness, really? You know, divisiveness is one of the few things the New Testament says, hey, if a person is living that, they need to be out of your church. The other things that are listed, um, there's always a purpose, the purpose is that they may repent and come back into your church. But when he's talking about divisiveness, he says, have nothing more to do with it. Why would he be so harsh about divisiveness? Divisiveness, let me tell you why. Because divisiveness is an infection. And if the infection is not dealt with and treated, it will spread. You know, it's interesting. Um, When you get an infection in your body, um, it can start as like a small cut on the finger or an infected tooth. It seems so small. It seems like no big ah oh, whatever. Like I'm, yeah, I can handle a little infection. No big deal. But that infection will start to spread and it'll get into your bloodstream. And the reason it's so dangerous when it gets into your bloodstream is then your body starts to attack it. And your body will actually release chemicals to attack the bacteria in this infection. And while it's attacking this bacteria, what can happen is something called sepsis, where there is an inflammation of your arteries as the blood is being, uh, is being passed around. And you can actually limit, by, fight, by your own body turning inward, trying to fight this infection, you actually begin to limit blood flow to things like the brain, and things like the heart and places like the kidney. And this is why infection can ultimately lead to death. And it is so similar in a church. If divisiveness is allowed to breed and multiply and stir and become just become this thing, then the church, at some point, they're like, oh, we have to turn all our attention to dealing with this infighting and this divisiveness. And the lifeblood of the church is no longer being poured into preaching the gospel, is no longer being poured into making disciples, no longer being poured into reaching the lost. The lifeblood of the church is now so focused inward on dealing with this divisiveness that the major organs of a church lose blood flow and the church dies. This is why Paul says, Warn them once, warn them twice, and then have nothing to do with them. These are not soft words that Paul is laying out here. So how do we, how do we be aware of this? How do, how do we be a church that says, man, the story of what God has done in your lives, in each other's lives, in our friendship, and in, in, in our ch- church corporately, and even in our city, how do we protect against this? Let me, let me give you three things here from the text. First, Uh, We need to learn to recognize dangerous dogmatics. And here's what I mean. Um, First, we have to recognize that we're all susceptible to this. Even Peter, he gets bullied into legalistic hypocrisy. This is what Paul goes into in verse 11. He says, when Cephas, also named Peter, it's kind of like an affectionate nickname, Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. So he was a Jew, but you know, he would eat with the Gentiles, converted to Christianity, no problem. But when they arrived... He began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy. Oh, if Peter's afraid of them, I should be afraid of them. And we need to stop eating with Gentiles so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. This is Peter. This is One of the, if not the primary leaders of the church, this is a guy who's like, sees Jesus walking on water and he's like, tell me to come to you. And he starts walking on water. This is the guy who preaches the gospel and 3000 people are saved and the church is born. And Peter, he doesn't even recognize the hypocrisy and the danger. And he's like, I just don't wanna cause issues. Let's just give in. They're bullies. But if we just give in, we'll just keep the peace. And if Peter will do that, we have to understand how susceptible we are. But this cannot be how we succumb to dangerous theology. We have to learn to recognize it. Dangerous theology is theology that deviates from God's word, like we talked about last week, either subtracting from the gospel, subtracting from God's word, or adding to God's word. Dangerous theology is teaching done in a way that separates and condemns. And the way we recognize dangerous teaching in theology is through what Paul calls sound doctrine. We have to know sound doctrine. Uh, The word for sound is the word healthy. Man, we should have healthy doctrine in our lives where we know who God is and what he's like, and we actually respond accordingly. When I was uh, was probably about 13 years old when I got my first job, and uh, it was at an Orange Julius in a mall because my parents owned it. Okay, so I was this little mullet-headed kid, right? And uh, my mom would put a stool for me because it was so small, and I would climb this little stool, and I would stand behind the cash register. And uh, this was like pre, you know, credit cards being very common, and so uh, it was all cash, dealing with cash all day. Now, the the biggest danger in that role um, was not, you know, people walking up and being like, I don't... I don't think you're old enough to work. I'm like, I don't think you're old enough to have an orange Julius when you walk away, buddy. You know, Uh, the biggest danger was actually people showing up and paying with counterfeit money, right? And here's why it's so damaging. Because it's not because they just got a free hot dog and nacho, whatever, like cost of goods, not that big of a deal. It's because they hand you a counterfeit bill and then you take your money out and hand them money to walk away with it. So my mom, she pulled me aside and she was like, hey, I, uh, Um, I want to teach you how to recognize counterfeit money. And I remember thinking, oh, this is fun. I get to see fake bills. Like, this will be awesome. She goes, no, 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 I'm not going to show you any fake bills because there's innumerable amounts of fakes out there, and we don't know what they're going to look like. What we know is we know the real thing, and we have to study the real thing. And so I'm going to show you the marks of the real thing and what to look for so that when something fake comes along, you can recognize it. This is what we need in our theology. Not that we go down these YouTube rabbit trails, that, you know, that we look for the boogeyman in every church, not that we spend so much time in the word, listening to the voice of Jesus, we know when somebody's deviating. That's how we recognize it. Second, uh, we need to watch our life and our doctrine. Again, Paul's advice to another young pastor, he says, watch your life and your doctrine closely. And here's what I mean. Um, I don't want you to walk away from this being like, oh, I feel, I feel leery of theology. I feel leery of doctrine. No, learn to love theology because theology is the study of God. It's, it's literally, it should push us into more love. For God, as we study his character and his nature, and we should ask over and over and over, what is God like and how can I become more and more in his image? And it's important that we are equipped with sound doctrine so we can recognize and know the true gospel and we can see when somebody's adding to or subtracting away from. But we also have to watch our life. What happens is people say, no, 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 I'm gonna watch doctrine. I don't care about my life. Or people say, I- I'm going to care about my life and how I live, and I'm not going to care about doctrine. But Paul says, no, no, it takes both. It takes both because doctrine doesn't just stop at a mental level. Your doctrine isn't merely what you believe. Your doctrine is how you live out what you believe. This is why James says, I'll show you my faith by what I do. I'll show you what I believe by how I love by how I treat people, by my response and my actions. And so if you find yourself studying doctrine under a particular teacher or tribe, and it's leading you to become a more angry, hate-filled person, it's leading you to think you are higher and better than others. You just sit around talking about how, how others are wrong and you are right. You need to cut that off immediately. That is poison to your soul. And it's not what we're called to. We're called to watch our life and doctrine closely. This is, you ever had a moment where you're in a conversation with somebody and everything they're saying, it seems to be true. Or maybe you don't actually even know how to refute it. Like, man, they know more than I do. So I don't know how to argue this or what it looks like. But there's something in you that just is like, but the way this is being said, this just doesn't feel right. Let me tell you what that is. That is the Holy Spirit inside you being grieved by how that person is going about it. And you need to, in those moments, man, would you surrender and would you just turn to the Lord and seek him in prayer and through reading of the word? This is how we live these things out. And here's a third way that we guard our relationships and we guard our church is we have to refuse to give in out of the fear of man. We get afraid of other people. Oh, man, but Peter is bullied here. And he's like, I just don't I, don't, I don't want to deal with it. And Paul's like, no, no, no. What Paul says is, we did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved in you. It's so tempting to appease people. Ah oh, man, if we just, like, let's just do this and say this, and, like, it, people would be happy, and let's just settle for what they want. Like, let's not stir the pot. It'll, it'll just be easier. And and Paul's saying, no, no, we did not give in to them for a moment because we know what we're building here, and it's so vital, and it's so important. You know, a little less than a year ago um, was a particularly uh, just challenging season in my life. Um, Nolan had just shared uh, that he was going to go plant in Phoenix. And, you know, one of the things that you got to understand about my relationship with Nolan is, like, that guy is also one of my best friends I've ever had. Like, I love, that guy is the real deal. I just love that guy. And so I'm, I'm grieving personally. I'm like, man, like, we spent all these years together. Like, I'm going to miss this friendship. But then you think about church, like, that dude was a workhorse. He did so much, and he brought so much. And I'm like, man, this is a big shift for what we're doing and, and how we operate and what this looks like. So I'm thinking on a church level, okay, how do we navigate this and where are we at and communicate and, and, and all these different pieces? Um, and then at home, Um, At home, it was a particular painful season for my wife. Um, She was just going through a season, really wrestling through um, just some mental and emotional battles. And so, um, when I was at home, uh, so much was grieving with her and trying to come around her, and what, because I love her to death so I'm in this season and friendship, pain, and church challenge. Okay, what does this look like moving forward? How do we do this? And just, and just grieving for my family and what we're going through. And I, and I had a couple of people reach out to me like, hey, we want to meet with you. And I was like, sweet, that's great. Didn't know him super well. I had only good interactions and, uh, you know, nothing but kind of maturity. That's all I'd ever seen from them. And so I found myself, I remember that morning getting up being like, oh, I'm excited. I'm actually excited for this meeting. Um, Because of all that I'm facing, I actually feel like this is, you know, I have friends and and leaders around me that I can share what's going on. But but I actually felt like, man, I I would love to even share with them and have them join in prayer, you know, over these things. Um, And we get in the meeting, we sit down, and um, I – am completely blindsided, man, I just get shredded for an hour, like literally, just like, you, you don't preach the Bible, you don't teach the Bible, you get up and give TED Talks, and you put in a Bible verse when it's convenient, I mean, it was just, it was like gnarly, it was like, you are leading us towards false teachers, you're quoting the wrong people, I can't believe you quote these, I mean, it just built, and built, and built, and like, if I can just be like, vulnerable, like, those are painful moments, man, they, like, like I can hold my own, you know what I'm saying? Like, like I, I get in that moment, and I'm like, okay, like you want to talk theology? You want to debate? Let's let's go. Like, like my blood gets, you know, let's, let, you know, gets going, and I can talk through. And and we we have this meeting, and it's brutal, and they walk walk out, and I sit down on my couch in my office, and I just think, like, man, these moments are so painful. Like I love this church, I care about this church, I want to lead this church well, and just to sit and just get ripped apart. And uh, if I'm really honest, I have this temptation in those moments. And the temptation I feel is, gosh, it'd be so easy to just make a few small adjustments to the way I say things uh, that would scratch their itch. I I could just quote a few different people, and, and I could I could word it in a different way, and, and I think then maybe it would just appease, appease them. I've heard it described as theological dog whistles, right? You know what a dog whistle is? You don't hear it, but they, the dog does, right? You know they, Because of the way their ears are. And, and so you just say little phrases. You just interject them. You know, little theological dog whistles. If you just say this, then that particular group, well, then they're going to approve of you. This is what's happening with Peter. If I, hey, It's just a meal, It's not that big of a deal. If I just don't eat with them and I eat with them, then it's gonna appease this group. And then I read passages like Galatians 1.10 where Paul says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I now trying to please man? And if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And here's what I think. The moment I hand... This pulpit over to the critics is the moment I need to step down because I've already abdicated leadership of this church. This is not their pulpit. This is not my pulpit. This isn't even a pulpit. It's a pub table. (laughs) But this church exists to platform the person of Jesus and the gospel of grace and not the agenda of man. Amen? And so this is what we will stand on, and this is what we will build on, and this is what we will continue to press forward in. And in the words of Paul, listen to me, I will not give into them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved in you. It's too, the gospel is too important to allow it to be hijacked by people's agendas. And listen, I, man, I love this church so much, dearly. I care about the health. I care about the unity. I care about the soundness of this church. And we have to protect that. We have to recognize dangerous dogmatics. We have to watch our life and doctrine closely, all of us. This isn't for people on a stage or people who play music or people teaching. This is all of us. We have to watch our life and our doctrine closely. But you guys, we have to refuse to give in to our fear of man to just make people happy. And I, I, one of the things I've learned and I've began to understand that like every pastor is just an interim pastor. You realize that, right? We're just here for a short season until my time is done or Jesus comes back. But while I have this role, I will not bow to the critics and the criticism. I will build upon the gospel and I will preach the word. I don't care if that criticism comes from the outside or I don't care if it's from, from, from within because this is Jesus's church that he has asked me to temporarily steward and lead and guide and feed. And I do not, more than anything, I do not want to deviate from the gospel because I want the truth of the gospel to be preserved in all of us. Jesus, would you allow us to continue to be a church that is just so rooted in who you are and your character and your nature and your grace and your love that it would just radiate outward. Lord, would you continue to help us recognize the story in each and every one of our own lives that you're writing, that we would not make our story about our failures or our shortcomings or our goodness, but we would hand our story over to you just like Paul did so that others would look at the transformation and the change in our lives and glorify you. Jesus, you are so good and you are so loving and we love you so much, what you've built, the story you've you've written. Lord, for decades to come in this city, would this be a story that just continues on and it would be a story of your glory, not our goodness. Would it be a story of your grace, not our religiosity? Would it be a story of your righteousness and holiness and not our rightness? Would we reflect to you? Praise in the name and nature of your Son, Jesus. Amen.